Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Well, you heard Jeremy for two weeks, and Ross is gone, so I am the Cardale Jones of this preaching team, uh, or Matt Hasselbeck. I don't know how you want to how you want to <clears throat> gauge that, but uh, we are in, in week three of our Revelation series here at Quest. I hope you've been enjoying it. Uh, I just want to say thank you to, to Jeremy for his first two weeks, if he's in here. Uh, did an excellent job. So, round of applause for Jeremy outside of the room. And a big thanks to Jay and Josiah and the rest of the team for uh, taking over worship leadership today so I could do this. Um, but we're going to dive right into it. And first, I would just like to give you a little bit of background of where I'm coming from for this. But um, it really, when it comes to Revelation and such, your experiences with it start when you're young. And I became a Christian around the time I was seven or eight years old. And I was in church and I was in Sunday school and such well before that, but by the time I was seven or eight, I, I really had some spiritual experiences that were really unmistakable, that really let me know uh, that God was real. And in one of those times, I made the formal decision to become a Christian. And now as a curious child just coming to faith, it really doesn't take long uh, for you to get curious enough to flip to the back pages of the Bible and see what Revelation is all about. And it frightened me. And not long after, by the time I was in middle school, the first run of the Left Behind novels were really insanely popular. And I remember reading the kids' version of them. And I enjoyed the story, I enjoyed the writing, but same thing, they scared me. And as a kid, you're rapidly acquiring your worldview. You know, your, your influences are vast, and some of them are good, and some of them are bad. And in the mind of a 10-year-old, you're trying to reconcile what you hear in Sunday school with what you hear on the playground, and that could be a tough task. There were days when I believed very strongly in two things. I believed, number one, that if I didn't pray for forgiveness, like the moment I fell asleep, that meant I left myself a little bit of margin to sin before I fell asleep, and that if I died while I was sleeping, I was just going to go to hell. Um, and and which, that's not how it works, but that's what I thought. And number two, I thought that if I stepped in the crack in the sidewalk, that I was going to fall and break my mama's back, right? Okay, so those are two two real big truths that I, that I held to and caused... Just not good uh, depression and anxiety for a little kid. I understand that I was uh, a little odd in that way, but uh, my concerns were real. My emotions were real. And at the end of Revelation, John writes these words, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I remember reading those as a kid. And to that, we're, we're praying or we're prone to saying, you know, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But I vividly remember nights laying on the top bunk, looking out my window, praying, Jesus, please don't come back yet. That all seems way too scary. I didn't want it to happen. And I believe most of us have experienced a time when the Bible seems scary, where preachers and teachers maybe seemed angry, when our insecurities and guilt have been pillars of our faith more than the grace and love and hope and promise that God gives us. So my overarching goal today is to share with you how Revelation should be a book of hope and of promise to us, as it was to its first audience when John first penned it. To do so, we're going to look at some tools for interpreting Scripture, like I mentioned earlier, 
about overcoming anger when it comes to our views and when we're pressed on them. And lastly, trusting that God has things under control. So the first part, the intro to biblical interpretation. This is an accredited class. I'll sign your certificates uh, on, your, on your way out the door. Um, first, I want to give a lot of credit to Gordon D. Fee and Douglas Stewart on their book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, because I'm borrowing very heavily uh, from them for this section. This is actually a book that uh, Ross picked for our Amazon bookstore and uh, put it on the Quest website a while back, still there for you to check out, and I can't commend it highly enough. It's, it's just very, very well done. So interpretation. We're all interpreters. If you read the Bible at all, you're interpreting it. Everything you read, everything you take in is run through lenses and filters of your upbringing, your socioeconomic status, your understanding of language, your level and type of education, and a variety of other things. This is most commonly called your worldview. And it's good to remember that it's not bad to interpret the Bible because we can't help it. And because we can't help but interpret the Bible when we read it, it becomes one of the reasons why all of us who do read it exercise theology. You're a theologian. You're a theologian. I'm a theologian. You're a theologian. It's like Oprah's favorite things with theology. You're a theologian. Look under your seats right now. Um, you know, it'd be, but it's true. We all exercise it. Now, some people in the world may make a living off of being a theologian. They may record and share their thoughts and feelings and findings, but that in and of itself doesn't make you then any less of a theologian or an interpreter of scripture. In seminary degree or not, book deal or not, every human, past, present, and future, has the ability to interpret Scripture and to interpret it poorly. We also have the ability to interpret Scripture differently just because of those cultural lenses that we wear, our nature and our nurture. And in speaking of those cultural lenses, those views, you know, the ones that we feel that we've had forever, since birth, that actually has a name. Howard Stone and James Duke call it embedded theology. Other times you may hear it called first-order theology or language of witness. In short, embedded theology is the stuff that's automatically ingrained in us, good, bad, or ugly, just by being alive. These are theological views we've absorbed since birth from our parents, teachers, pastors, bosses, sermons, songs, etc. Now, a lot of us would just like to stay there. You know, we would rather have someone tell us what to believe and never have to question it or think about it. But being an active Christian that's actively studying the Bible calls us to second-order theology, or what Stone and Duke called deliberative theology. It's defined as the understanding of faith that emerges from a process of carefully reflecting upon embedded theological convictions. Essentially, deliberative theology makes you pull back It calls you to pull out of your bubble and really study and question your embedded theology. Sometimes your deliberative reflection and study will bring you to the conclusion that your embedded theology was right all along. But sometimes it won't. Sometimes it will challenge you to adjust your views, even the ones that you've held near and dear for a long time. Now, both embedded and deliberate theology are good, and they're important uh, to have and to identify as a growing believer. And they also help both inform and drive your interpretation of the Bible, Revelation included. I think Fee and Stewart say it best. Correct interpretation, therefore, brings relief to the mind as well as a prick or a prod to the heart. So good interpretation, deliberate reflection, and frankly, a spirit of humility will most of the time help make Scripture make sense to us cognitively. 
but it may hurt us emotionally because maybe some view or doctrine or view of God or view of life that we've clung to for a long time, maybe that was given to us by somebody that we love. We could identify it. A loved one, a parent, a family member, a friend gave that to us and we've held on to it. And if you find through your reflection that you think that might be flawed, it could hurt. It could cause pain. But that's okay. It's a growing pain. Remember, not all embedded theology is bad or wrong, but you always want to run it through the filter of deliberate theology. Reflect upon it. Think about it critically. When Jeremy kicked off this series a couple of weeks ago, he talked about context and co-text and the important role they play in reading Revelation and, frankly, the Bible in general. So today, very quickly, I want to take that to its next level. And to start that talk, I want to ask you a question. Uh, Tommy's going to throw some pictures up on the screen. And have you ever seen pictures like these floating around your news feed, like on Facebook? You know, they're the inspirational Bible quote picture. Uh, they have the nice little script fonts and the, the stock photo image background of nature or, or of uh, uh, maybe those little kids that dress up in the adult clothes like you see on Hallmark cards. And, and, and they're nice, and they may be uplifting, and they're neat to see in our news feed when we see them all the time. But even though they are uplifting and beautiful, sometimes they can also put us in a really big danger of misinterpreting Scripture because they can pull us so far away from the context. So let me give you a couple of examples. Okay, Matthew 4.9. <clears throat> all of this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now, some of you may see where I'm going with this, but let's all arrive there together. Um, if we look at this little verse in our news feed with the nice, pleasant graphic behind it, and we didn't know any better, we may go, oh, that's nice. You know, God, he wants us to, you know, have good things. He just wants us to, to worship him. And, but who, who are we actually quoting? Satan. That's the devil. That's when Jesus was in the wilderness and the devil was tempting him. So let's try another. All right. Another nice, pretty background, good font. Let's read it. Leviticus 25:15. <clears throat> when you buy land from your neighbor, the price you pay must be based on the number of years since the last jubilee. The seller must set the price by taking into account the number of years remaining until the next jubilee. Have you ever seen that one scroll through your newsfeed at all? No. Uh, any realtors in the room that are going, I've never accounted for the <laughs> jubilee when selling a house. But see, that one was actually God speaking. But we read that, and it isn't immediately uplifting. It doesn't take us to this nice proverb piece of wisdom place. And we would automatically go, I need more context. I need to know kind of more what's going on around this. What does this mean? We look at the first one from Matthew, and we see that it could sound beautiful, and it could sound uplifting, but we find by good exegesis that that's the devil speaking to Jesus, not giving us a nice little proverb. It's all about context. And we exercise interpretation of context in two practices. But understanding context drives interpretation. Interpretation drives our theological thoughts and views. And good interpretation, like I said, boils down to two practices. And those are called exegesis and hermeneutics. Like I said, theology 101. You guys are getting some good words today. I'll sign those certificates. It'll be good. Exegesis and hermeneutics. So using fee and Stewart's wording... Exegesis involves the careful, systematic study of the scripture to discover the original intended meaning. <clears throat> this is primarily a historical task. It is the attempt to hear the word as the original recipients were to have heard it. 
between services, I was talking to Tommy Faisal, who's running the video booth today, and he was just, well, he was telling me what I did wrong in my message. I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, it was good. But we were talking about how, you know, it is important for us to remember that the, even though the Bible means a lot to us today, it also had to mean something and make sense to the people it was first written to. And that's really what exegesis is about. Good exegesis keeps us from getting a tattoo of Matthew 4.9 uh, because it allows us to identify that it was a temptation that Satan was throwing at Jesus, not a nice little motivational proverb. The second practice is called hermeneutics. Although this term gets used from time to time to cover all of interpretation, including exegesis, its specific meaning is to seek the contemporary relevance of ancient texts. So as we read the Bible, Revelation included, we need to exercise both exegesis and hermeneutics. One without the other is dangerous. Nothing but hermeneutics leaves us counting down the day of Jubilee to buy a house and putting Satan quotes on an inspirational Facebook post. <clears throat> Nothing but exegesis leaves us with little to no practical steps in using the Bible in everyday life. So as we focus on Revelation itself, the best way to start the exegesis is to look at its genre, or in its specific case, genres. Many of you have probably seen little infographics like, you know, that look like bookshelves or something that organize the books of the Bible. I'm going to mute this real quick. I have a background in audio production. I know to mute the microphone when you cough. <clears throat> anyway, you may have seen these before, the, uh, where it breaks up the books of the Bible and tells you, are they history, are they prophecy, are they wisdom, are they law? So there's law, there's letters, there's prophecy, there's poetry, and so on. And all of these genres have sets of characteristics that make them unique. And then we put, when we put them all together in the Bible, they give us a really nice, beautiful, harmonious look at God and in his character as best as written word really can. And Revelation is unique because it combines three different types of literary genre. And that isn't always displayed easily on a chart or infographic. Now, two of these genres that we're going to talk about we know pretty well. And one, we don't know very well at all because it doesn't exist anymore. So let's start with the two that we do know. Genre one is a letter or epistle. Now, I'm listing these genres in order of appearance, uh, not necessarily like ingredients. You know, like if you look at the back of the soup can, the first one listed is just like the broth or whatever. Well, I'm not doing it by content. This is just what Revelation starts out as. It starts out as a letter or an epistle. Now, there's a prologue that John writes, too, that still follows, um, still follows the letter or epistle order. Um, <clears throat> but as you get into the meat of chapter 1, you really see how this is geared to a specific audience and time, even though it does have a lot of application for us. In verse 4, it says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And he continues with blessings of grace and peace in his greeting and so on. Now, cliffhanger. Uh, I'm not going to talk much about the letter portion to the seven churches because Ross is covering that in the next two weeks. Um, so make sure you check back in for that. But know that that is the primary genre of that section. The second genre of Revelation is prophecy. As again, you can read in uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, prophecy is not primarily a way of telling the future, but rather to speak forth God's word in the present that usually had as its content coming judgment or salvation. Now, we see epistles or letters quite a bit in the Bible, and we also see prophecy a lot in the Bible. Both happen in Revelation. But there is also a third genre that Revelation has, and it's called apocalypse. So if Revelation was a soup, apocalypse would be the first thing on the back of the can. 
Now, our culture over the years has gotten a hold of the word apocalypse, and we've kind of made it to mean a lot of things. For most of us, if we hear apocalyptic used as a genre, we immediately think of books and movies and songs and art that depict the end of the world. The end of the world as we know it. Yes, it's the end. That's right. I heard there it is. However, apocalypse really just means revelation, which is how we get back to the book name. Apocalypses were well-known writings between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D., but Revelation is the only one that is found in the Bible. So though apocalyptic writing really does find its imagery and its roots in Old Testament prophetic literature, it has really important differences. Old Testament prophets were primarily God's spokespeople, and the medium for prophecy was spoken word first, and then it was written down. However, apocalypse is a form of literature, a a form of writing first. It has a certain structure, a a certain form, much like different types of poetry. Much like when you buy a book of sermons or uh, short stories, that book that you're buying uh, isn't necessarily the original medium of that content. That book is the secondary way uh, that it's being packaged and delivered to you. And that's how Old Testament prophecy works. Its original medium was spoken word. It was then collected later and written down. So apocalyptic writings began as writings, not spoken word. The form, the style, all important. Revelation is no exception. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. It says, write, therefore, what you have seen. Here are some other characteristics of apocalyptic writing. Uh, First is that apocalyptic writings were written during times of persecution or oppression. And you don't have to look very far into Revelation or into church history, uh, very far for that matter, to see that Christians, John included, were being persecuted, namely by the Roman Empire at that time. So looking at this in the frame of mind for exegesis, the original audience, original time frame, you have someone who is persecuted and oppressed in John writing to others that are persecuted and oppressed by the empire of their day. And you begin to see that the prophecy it contains has promises that the end of oppression will come. It happened for them then. Practicing good exegesis will show us that even though other oppression has come and gone, God did put an end to oppression of that time from the Roman Empire. And in practicing good hermeneutics, we see throughout Revelation that God will put an end to oppression of all kinds, from the Babylons of the world that we face and Satan that we face here today and now. Also, apocalyptics are presented in the form of visions or dreams. So this is where a lot of the cryptic language in Revelation comes from. And many scholars believe that Revelation was written as an apocalypse, so the original readers would have less of a chance of getting in trouble for reading it, more like coding. So again, they were under persecution from the Roman Empire, and you can't just have John writing a note uh, to the believers of the time in Asia going, it's okay, God's going to wipe out the Romans, see you later, love John. Uh, that, just, that just wouldn't work out very well. Also, apocalyptics were full of fantasy-styled imagery. So when Jesus would tell parables, or you would see um, uh, some imagery happening in Old Testament prophecy, they would use a lot of realistic images. Uh, light and darkness and fig trees and seed and salt and bread and people and so on. But apocalyptic writings, like Revelation, have more fantasy-based imagery. For example, in Revelation, we see like women clothed in the sun and things covered in eyeballs and locusts with human heads. Um, all things that we could kind of visualize. We know the pieces, but we have to imagine them all together. 
Also, apocalyptic writing had formal, very formal stylization, much like a haiku poem has a form, or a letter has a form with certain line breaks and indentations, etc. Apocalyptic writing strategically arranged images and such in sets and used a lot of numbers. Also, apocalyptics typically used pseudonymity. Uh, this is one part of apocalyptic style that John doesn't use, though. He doesn't use a pseudonym. He doesn't use a pen name. Um, he uses his actual name of John. We don't have a whole lot of time to dive into why uh, a lot of other apocalyptic writers used uh, pen names and pseudonyms, but it is pretty interesting. John, though, didn't feel the need to hide who he was. He wanted to share that information um, and, and obviously started it as a letter using his real name. So now all of that, all that head knowledge, I tell you to help you with your exegesis and thus your hermeneutics. Those things are all the beginner's tool set for interpreting scripture. But in typical everyday Christian circles, people aren't going to be critiquing you or challenging you so much in your exegesis. They might, but they will be more prone to challenge or debate you over the hermeneutics. In other words, even though you need good understanding of context to inform the Bible's application to your life, most conflict starts with people's differences in that life application. In my personal opinion, when we get challenged too hard or too often, especially on things like how we view revelation, we could slip into anger. And that's why I've entitled this next point, Overcoming View Anger. If you think about it, angry delivery of scripture has been seeped into the church for a long time. Uh, check out this video from Brexit Cavey. He explains it really well. Now, some of us who've grown up in the church, this is hard for us because God has used angry preaching in our lives. And he does because God, God's gracious and he uses all kinds of stupid things. But that doesn't mean that stupidity should be our goal. I grew up with a lot of angry preaching and God has used that in my life. But that's no excuse for me to say, therefore, no, no, therefore I submit to Christ and I follow his way. But I was blind to it. I, I married a woman who was not blind to it because she wasn't raised in a Christian home. And she had to point it out to me. <clears throat> Nina, my wife, she's amazing. She was, she was raised in a very intellectual, atheist home. Uh, parents, both professors at university. Uh, her father, a double doctorate in German philosophy and literature. I mean, <clears throat> this is quite a home. Did you ever remember the sitcom Frasier? Uh, my wife, Nina, was raised by both Frasier and Niles Crane. Right? <laughs> Party nights were wine tasting and we'll read a bit of Kierkegaard, right? So this is her life. And she's a brilliant, brilliant woman now, a psych, a psych professor, a psychiatric nurse professor at the same university. And uh, she's, she's a beautiful person inside and out, smart, perceptive. We're driving one day in the car and I'm listening to a radio preacher. And I'm enjoying what he's teaching. And she says to me, hey, Roxy, how come you can listen to that? How come you can even stomach it? I said, what are you talking about? It's a man of God preaching the word of God. She goes, okay, uh, seriously. I mean, really, how can you make excuses for him? I don't know what she's talking about. I said, what do you mean excuses? Are you saying something wrong? She said, I'm not talking about his content. I'm talking about his character. I'm talking about what he was expressing. And, and I said, I don't understand. What, I, I was completely blind. She says, well, obviously, the gentleman has anger issues. <laughs> obviously, this is a person who, if you were to meet in any other context of life, you would assume needs therapy. Why are you turning to him as a role model? I still, what? I don't know. He's just, and here I, I slip to the P word, another one of the excuses that we use. What's the P word we use to excuse anger? We say, he's just a man filled with 
passion. Here's another one, right? He's just got passion for the faith. In my mind, you know, we're very, we're created, creative. So when we want to excuse make, we can be very creative at doing it. We don't even realize how creative we are. And, and so she says to me, listen, um, <clears throat> here's what you can try and do. Continue to listen to him, but pretend he's talking about any other topic other than the love and grace of Jesus. So I did. My world turned upside down. Just continued to listen to his tone, but pretend I was listening to him talk in any other context. How about a commercial on the radio? Because at Sleep Country, we provide you with the best mattresses. And if you buy a mattress, anyone else, may you have a restless night for the rest of your lives. <laughs> and I heard this. I was, ah, what about a lecturer, a university? Because the square root of the hypotenuse goes over the white. I don't know anything about math. That's as far as I can go with that one. I... <laughs> what about you take driver's ed class? Right? And he's there saying... And if you don't signal first and look over your shoulder before you change lanes, you will have a crash that will end in a fiery, torturous torment. (laughs) Here are people who you would not allow to babysit your children. (laughs) Here are people we would say are psychologically imbalanced. But this is the power of religion. We can hide a great many evils in the closet of religion. And we can justify them through our creative exegesis of scripture. But it it fails miserably. Even a child could understand this. It's wrong. It's sin. And we need to repent as a church culture and as certain individuals who have been a party to this. So here's the thing. Just like we saw and heard in the video, there's this tendency for us church folk to be drawn into that style of angry, wrathful speaking and preaching, which further perpetuates the issue with our own hearts when we get really invested in a certain view or theological interpretation. It's like we subconsciously believe that if we feel really strongly about something, that we have to get upset about it. We feel we have just, dignified, supported anger. And it puts us in a place of heavy hypocrisy because the Bible is chock full of verses and passages telling us not to be angry. James 1, 19 through 20 is just one example, but in my opinion, a really good one. It says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I don't think we've, any of us have been spared from a theological debate that didn't slip into anger from time to time. And God's anger is just and righteous. Human anger is not. God is the judge. We are not. God will handle the judging, but he has given us a task of communicating his goodness, his righteousness, his story, his promises, his love with all people. God will handle judgment. God will handle anger. God will handle wrath against Satan. And I think the greatest danger that we face with anger, evangelism, or debate, etc., is that we can damage relationships. Not just within the church, but also with the people we're trying to spread the gospel to outside of the church. Woodland Hills Church uh, used an infographic in their Q&A message on Revelation about a year or so ago. And I think it's pretty neat. In my opinion, it illustrates our relationship above differences here at Quest. Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy say it best since it is, in fact, their infographic. And if your favorite substitute teacher showed one video, 
I'm going to show two videos. Uh, so here's uh, Paul and Greg uh, talking about that graphic from Woodland Hills. I think it's uh, topics like these, it's good to remind ourselves as we enter in, into discussion for the next 45 minutes on a topic that um, has, for the last 2,000 years, caused a lot of dissension and controversy and debate. Say a lot more heat than light uh, in, in this whole thing. Um, it's good to remind ourselves where we find our, our center, where we find our okayness, right? And put up on the screen here, we've, we've talked about this numerous times. Greg's reminded us frequently that when it comes to beliefs, what we believe in the Christian faith, that as long as we keep Jesus at the center and that everything after that comes out of the scripture that Jesus pointed to, but that to remember that there's concentric circles in terms of the importance of various beliefs. For so many people, they sort of, it's almost like they have a box of beliefs in their head, and if you disagree with any one of their beliefs, there's like everything's at stake now. Um, it's pretty clear in Scripture that there's some core sort of pillar uh, elements to things, what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. The basics, what we call dogma, but after you get out of that sort of centric, uh, center sort of place, things start to become more debated, more diverse. Denominations start disagreeing, certainly in the doctrinal area. Um, important stuff, but Christians disagree on that stuff. When you get to opinions, you're at the very outer layer, and a lot of the disagreements of the things we're talking about this morning, end time stuff, tend to fall in that opinion layer thing. And I mean, that's the point at which you might end up disagreeing with you know, your best friend or your, your senior pastor. I mean, uh, Greg and I disagree on some things, uh, certainly at the opinion level, and I will go to my death uh, defending his right to be wrong on all that stuff. <laughs> so um, let's, let's do this with Jesus at the center and listen and learn together. All right. All right. So when it comes to Revelation specifically and people's views on end times, I think we get really guarded and really testy because we've been engulfed in a culture that scares us with it. You know, fear-driven evangelism is a real thing, and it's hard to overcome. But I think we also accidentally believe that every pastor, author, and theologian agrees uh, with us on our interpretation of the Bible or even Revelation specifically. And thus, anyone who disagrees with us is then dumb or ignorant or at the very nicest, they're misinformed. So I did a little social experiment. Um, in true millennial fashion, I took to Twitter and reached out to a bunch of pastors and authors and theologians and worship leaders, etc., and I asked them all the same question. What is one truth you wish everyone knew about Revelation? I'm going to share their responses. Now, let me say this before we carry on with it. I'm not asking you to buy in to what every single one of these people is saying. They all have different views and things like that. My goal is just to show you that there are a lot of bright, intelligent, well-read people that have differing views on how to interpret Revelation. So we'll start with Greg Boyd. Um, he's a big-time author of books like Across the Spectrum, The Myth of a Christian Religion, etc. He's also one of the pastors at Woodland Hills there in Minnesota, which is where we got the video with the rings in it. Uh, his uh, buddy Paul Eddy was the one speaking in our clip. He says it's a violently anti-violence book. Next, we have Brian Zahn. Uh, he's the author of books like A Farewell to Mars. He's the pastor of uh, Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He most recently penned the introduction to Revelation for Group Publishing's Jesus Center Bible that came out uh, later last, earlier last month. He says, easy, that everything in the book is symbol. You can't say, this is symbol, but that is literal, it's all symbol. 
Next, Jonathan Merritt. Um, he echoes Zahn pretty closely. Jonathan Merritt's an award-winning writer on religion and culture and politics. Uh, he serves as a contributing writer for The Atlantic. He's a senior columnist for Religion News Service. He's been in USA Today, The National Journal, all over different news ne networks. Uh, he says that it is largely symbolism, imagery, and allegory. Next is Gary Molander. Uh, he took three tweets uh, to share his take. Gary is a formal, uh, former vocational pastor. He's the author of Pursuing Christ, Creating Art, and is the founder of Floodgate Productions, which specializes in creating church media uh, that you see all over websites like Worship House Media and Sermon Spice and so on. He says, no matter how you interpret it, Revelation is a letter to seven hurting and persecuted churches. That must always be the center we keep coming back to. The events of Revelation continue to say, no matter what, God's got this, even this. Hearers were personally challenged, but overwhelmingly encouraged when they heard it read to them in the gathering. Next is Jason Upton. Most of you know Jason because he has come and led worship and preached here a couple times in the past. He's an internationally known worship leader, songwriter, and speaker. We do his song, In Your Presence, uh, here a lot. He begins with quoting Revelation 1. He says, write what you see, Revelation 1.11. Revelation is art and theology at its best. Next is Mark Deaver. He's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He's also the president of Nine Marks, formerly known as the Center for Church Reform. And I understand that he's pr predominantly known uh, for being Calvinist in his preaching style. He says its overall message is incredibly clear and encouraging. God wins. Next, we have Brexy Cavey, who's one of my favorite uh, pastors, authors, and theologians. He's the pastor of the Meeting House, a huge Anabaptist church uh, based out of Canada. He was the guy speaking in the video clip about angry preaching. He says, Jesus is Lord, worked out over 22 chapters. All the best. Canadians are so polite. Gives me a little sending there. Love that guy. Uh, last but not least uh, is a local pastor and friend of mine. His name's Jerry Funston. Uh, Jerry's the lead pastor of the Journey Fellowship uh, in Acts 29 Church in Galena. He says, Jesus is the whole point. Don't get so busy trying to interpret a vision that you forget it. So I tweeted a lot of people. And I tried to diversify based on their views, etc. Uh, I even tweeted at people who didn't respond, like Donald Miller and Andy Stanley. And I'm sure they're listening to the podcast right now, and they'll get back to me next time. Um, but you know something? Even with all their different views and all their different backgrounds, none of these people said, be afraid. None of them said, prepare for judgment. None of them said, God's wrath will fall hard and soon. None of that. The center of all their points centered around Jesus, around encouragement, and how we interpret the book itself. Now, like I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm changing the format of the service a little bit, but Ross isn't here, so Wendy's here, but Ross isn't here. Um, we're going to move into a time of musical worship, and with that, we're going to celebrate communion. And please stick around, because I'm not done sharing today's message. My last part's shorter, I promise, but really important. And I, th I can't think of a better way to make sure that Jesus is in the center of our message today than by putting communion and musical worship right into the center of the message. So as the worship team comes up to the stage and gets settled in, um, just allow me to introduce communion to you in a pseudo old school way. So before Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples and shared a meal with them. And as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. 
It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And I tell each of us here now that Jesus' same broken body and same shed blood that he spoke of then is the same broken body and same shed blood that allows us forgiveness of our sins even now. And reminds us that our God is a God who loves his people and is true to his people throughout all ages, past, present, and future. So I invite all of you to come to the table and take of communion today as we continue to worship. My last little Twitter experiment kind of gave away my last point, uh, but this is it. It's that God has it under control. So for several years, I used to help direct a vacation Bible school style summer camp for elementary school students. And for many of these students, it was their first full week away from home. For many of them, it was also their first time away from the city or the suburbs, away from TV and from air conditioning, and away from dance recitals and soccer games. And you know what the number one question they ask me and the other counselors all the time? What time is it? They always ask what, they always ask what time it was. And, and you know what we said to them? We told them not to worry about it. We have it taken care of. Don't worry about what we're doing next. We'll get you where you need to be. We'll have meals ready. We'll make sure that the next devotion is organized. We'll make sure that you get to the pool on time. Go be with your friends. Explore God's creation. Read. Create something. Sometimes I feel like we as Christians are those camp kids and God's our camp counselor. Especially when it comes to end times and what we're supposed to be doing and how to guess about symbols and and count down the days. But we're so preoccupied with these times and and symbols and, and markers and what's next that we don't take advantage of the opportunity that God has given us to live and love and enjoy now. All throughout the Bible, God says, don't worry, don't be afraid. And he always delivers. He always sees his people through. And now is the time to bring people to him, to bring glimpses of the new heaven and the new earth that were promised to the here and now. Many of you know that uh, my wife Melinda and I had our first baby, our daughter Cadence, back in July. Uh, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you're reminded like twice daily, three times daily, uh, with pictures and videos flooding your news feeds, a token dad picture right there. When she was born, though, Sharon, our, our children's ministry director, gave us a gift, another book, actually, that Ross recommended. Um, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the other night, Melinda and I were reading it to her, and I was about to tear up with just how beautifully it was just portraying and translating the love of God, even within the book of of Genesis, which sometimes seems very daunting to us. And I read the last pages of the Jesus Storybook Bible when I was preparing for this message. They're kids-style retelling of Revelation. And as we go into prayer and sending, I just want to read it to you. It says, It was hard to squeeze all John saw into words and fit it onto a page and cram it into a book. All the words and all the pages of all the books and all the world would never be enough. I am the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that it would be hard to explain, that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great. It would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end because, of course, that is how stories finish. And this one's not over yet. So instead, he wrote 
Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Which perhaps is really just another way of saying to be continued. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, today I invite you to pray. Uh, Some of the worship team members will be down here so you could come have them pray for you. And I encourage you to pray with others next to you or across the room from you as well. And if you came today with a need or hurt or praise in your heart, share it. But I also want you to pray over your embedded theology today. What does God want you to reflect on? Where do you feel you need more perspective when studying Revelation and all of the Bible? Pray that God will open your eyes and humble your heart to his truth and providence. And then go. Go bringing the promise of the new heaven and the new earth to every single person you meet. I love you, church. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thank you.